Welcome back and welcome to the bonus episode of me and my friend Pete. This is the fourth bonus episode titled While You Were Sleeping. This bonus episode covers Witchblade number 80, Witch Hunt, part one. Without further ado, I give to you Witchblade number 80, Witch Hunt, part one. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. Before we jump into Witchblade number 80, we of course have to know who's wielding the power. So can I get a spotlight please on the first woman to be featured in an episode of me and my friend Pete, the first lady of Top Cow, and in my opinion, the greatest hero to emerge from the Upstar Company, Italian America's very own, New York's very own, the NYPD's very own, Sarah Magdalene Pazzini. So first things first, we've got an actual year birthday for Sarah Pazzini, which is kind of taboo in comics because publishers, I think, want their heroes to be timeless. But Sarah's timeless regardless, and she was born November 18th, 1970, to Italian-American parents. Her father, an NYPD officer, was killed in the line of duty when Sarah was still a girl, prompting her to become a police officer and follow in the footsteps of her father. And Sarah is an excellent police officer and has risen to the rank of detective in the NYPD. Her first appearance in comics was in Sideblade slash Shy, the battle for independence, that's with a T at the end, number one in January of 1995. While working undercover, she and her partner were both attacked and left for dead at the Rialto Theater. Here, she first came into contact with the Witchblade, which at the time was being held by a billionaire named Kenneth Irons, who knew of the Witchblade's power and was trying to unlock it for himself. However, the Witchblade, by design, prefers to bond with female hosts and chose Sarah, saving her life and imbuing her with fantastic powers. Without those powers, Sarah is a skilled hand-to-hand -hand fighter, an excellent markswoman, and a pretty decent detective. She has a strong spirit, which she absolutely needs when wielding the power of one of the most incredible weapons in the comics universe, the Witchblade. The Witchblade is a gauntlet that's part of an elemental trio which includes the Darkness and the Angelus respectively. The Witchblade is the offspring of these two and sits between the opposing elements, acting as a balance between light and darkness for the three. The Witchblade is sentient, it chose Sarah, and has moves ranging from passive to completely bloodthirsty. When attached to a host, it gives that host fantastic abilities, including forming weapons for its wielder to use, such as swords and blades, increased leaping ability, super strength, a healing factor, fire blast, it can bring the dead back to life, it can create sturdy, often revealing armor for its host. Usually when the armor is summoned, it shreds Sarah's clothes because the armor is defensive, but it also comes with a lot of pointed edges and spikes, so it's offensively defensive, if that makes sense. The Witchblade can slow, stop, and turn back time and allow its host through dreams to relive past host lives. It's much like being the avatar in The Last Airbender where you have access to every former avatar's experiences. Shout out to Aang, shout out to Korra. Some notable former hosts of The Witchblade from history include Anne Bonnie the Pirate, Saint Joan of Arc of France, and Hua Mulan of Imperial China. So, we've got the players, let's get to the play. There are a lot of credits for this one, but Top Cow produces both company-owned and creator-owned properties, so it is always important to give as many people as possible their flowers. Credit leads to more work, which as an artist is rarely a bad thing, so let's get into it. 
The cover of the issue I own, variant A, there are four variants, was done by Michael Choi and Brian Bucciolato. The writer is Ron Mars. We've got Michael Choi on pencils. We've got inks by Joe Weems, Matt Bat Banning, and Sal Regla. Brian Bucciolato did the colors on this one, and Darko Chrysalic did the flats. So I didn't know what a flatter was. I looked it up, and according to Wikipedia, the flatter prepares the ink or sketch comic book pages for the colorist with digital art software, such as Adobe Photoshop. Design and letters were done by Robin Spihar and Dreamer Designs and Dennis Heisler. And finally, Witchblade was created by Mark Silvestri, David Wall, Brian Haberlin, and one of my favorite comic book artists of all time, the immortal, the eternal, Michael Turner. I hope my thank you for all your eye food reaches you through the ether, Michael. So we get to the cover and we have a gorgeous cover. It is a pinup cover. This cover you can put on your wall. You probably would put it on your wall if you're a young adolescent kid who's attracted to gorgeous, scantily clad women. We have Sarah. She's in her witchblade armor. The gauntlet is running up her right arm, down her left arm. Her fingers are sharp claws because of the gauntlet. And the gauntlet is kind of an olive green with a golden inlay. It has a large red jewel. At the center of her right hand, there's a smaller blue jewel beneath it, and then there's another jewel at her elbow. It's covering her breast, it's covering her crotch, in thin lines, so a lot of her skin is exposed. Only her arms are very much protected. Everything else is kind of out there, bearing all her breasts are covered, but everything else is kind of out there. Sarah is looking straight on at us, and she has the witch blade crossing her chest up close to her face. We have great witch blade armor creeping onto her face on both sides, very symmetrical, and Sarah's a gorgeous woman. She has full red lips, she has bright white teeth, she has brown eyes, she has almond-shaped eyes, and she has long flowing brown hair. It's a gorgeous pinup cover. So we get into the comic, and on the inside flap, across from all of the credits, we have a recap of last issue. I'm going to read it really quickly. Lacrima, an evil villainess, threw New York into a mass depression using the power of an amulet called the Rapture. Sarah's partner, Jake McCarthy, caught up in the black mood, decides to get back at Sarah's sister, Julie, for breaking his heart. After they had dated seriously, Jake caught Julie dealing drugs and had to arrest her himself. We last learned that Jake had tried to take his gun into the prison to shoot Julie and had been suspended from the force. So there's a lot going on here. Sarah's sister, her partner, they're at odds, and Jake is planning on killing Sarah's sister. I don't think that's going to sit too well with Sarah. We move on to page one, and we get a beautiful image of Sarah here in black negative space. She has brown shoulder-length hair, almond eyes, a button nose, and full lips. Held up in front of her face, we have the witch blade wrapped around her hand, the back of her palm facing us. To me, it's the most gorgeous weapon in the superhero game. Here it is grayish green with gold inlay, a large red gem on the center of her hand with a blue one slightly lower and to its right, and we can see it is armor, but it also has transformed the tips of her fingers into claws. So like I said, offensively defensive. It's a beautiful image. And from off panel, someone says, hey, how you doing? We turn to page two and the camera zooms in tight on Sarah's face as she stares off panel. Whoever's just entered the room says sorry to interrupt and the camera zooms in tighter. But now we see it's focused on the red gem of the Witchblade and the person says he's trying to find Sarah Pazzini. We zoom in again and now the focus is on the red gem of the Witchblade as the voice says he was sent to this room by the front desk. In the next panel, the red of the gem has become a straight line of red light ending in a glowing circle coming into the panel from left to right. Finally, the red light becomes the lines of a heart monitor as the person asks if he's in the right place. We move on to page three and we see this is Sarah's heart monitor. So that was a great transition from the red gem of the witch blade 
to the beating of Sarah's heart. It subconsciously hints at the connection between the two. I think it's beautiful storytelling. Beautiful storytelling without having to say a word. Take note, this is Sarah's heart monitor. She is unconscious in a hospital bed in a blue hospital gown and she is in rough shape. She has a large white gauze on the right side of her head, another on her right bicep. She's got a nasal cannula up her nose. That's the plastic tube that wraps around your face supplying oxygen that you always see people wearing in hospitals. That is exactly a nasal cannula. She has butterfly band-aids over her left eyelid, a small bandage beneath her lower lip and she's covered in scrapes. There's an IV needle in her left arm, which is facing up, and on her right wrist, which is facing down, the Witchblade. Now, when the Witchblade isn't in active mode, it disguises itself as a bracelet, and we see it here. It's gray with a large red gem at its center and smaller blue one beneath and to the right, much as it is when it's in full gauntlet mode. Someone from off panel says they're sorry. So we turn a page for her, we see a young man sitting beside her hospital bed. He's got blonde hair, a chiseled chin, and blue eyes, and there is a look of annoyance on his face as he stares past Sarah at whoever's just entered the room. He's asking who this person is. The camera pans and we see another white guy. He's wearing a dark trench coat, a blue collared shirt, and black tie. He's tan, he has blue eyes also with black hair, and even has a little Superman curl action working. That's the one thing about Witchblade comics. Everyone in them, absolutely gorgeous. They're all beautiful people. And this beautiful person, he says his name is Detective Patrick Gleason, that he usually works out of the commissioner's office, but apparently Sarah's got friends, so here he is. He extends a hand out at the blonde guy and says, I didn't get your name. The blonde guy doesn't care. He says what anybody should say when approached by a person in street clothes claiming to be a cop. Quote, let's see your shield. We get to page five and we have Gleason, an annoyed look on his face, reaching into his trench coat. He pulls out his shield, it's silver, his badge number is 1004. If you see a police officer's badge, Always take down the number and ask for their unit, station house. And if you're feeling really pressured, their commanding officer. These should not be things they stumble on. Back to Gleason showing the blonde guy his badge. He asks if the man is satisfied. And the man says, eh, it'll do. We get a great panel of Blondie turning his attention back to Sarah lying in bed. He says his name is Jake McCarthy and that he was Sarah's partner before he was put on administrative leave. And he says he's cautious because weird things tend to happen around Sarah. Would one of those weird things be you wanting to kill her sister? I wonder, Jake. Jake's been Sarah's partner since her original partner was killed when she became host to the Witchblade. So if Jake knows anything, he knows weird and it's made him, by design, suspicious. Gleason says it's good that Jake is here because he wanted to have a chat with him anyway. In the final panel, we have Gleason saying that Jake's built a bit of a rep for himself upstate. He says that's Jake's business, alluding to the fact that Jake may be a bit of a bad boy. But he's here for information on Sarah. In response, Jake tells Gleason that everything the man needs to know is in her department jacket, which I take to be her employee record. We turn the page and the camera is pulled in tight on Gleason, in profile, and he says, the basics, Sarah Pizzini, badge number 14573, 33 years old, daughter of Vincent Pizzini on the job and killed in the line of duty. Graduated from the academy September 93, promoted to detective January 95, which is either spectacular or some kind of ridiculous. Just as many departmental reprimands as she has commendations, and like you said, she's attracted to the weird stuff. Or maybe it's the other way around. End quote. He ends by saying that she's a good cop, so he wants to know how she ended up in a coma because the incident report doesn't have much in it. He asks if Sarah being laid up like this has anything to do with the weird stuff, and Jake replies, who knows? Jake takes Sarah's hand and adds that three weeks ago, a priest from St. Augustine's heard a disturbance in the sanctuary. When the priest went to check out the disturbance, he found the sanctuary destroyed and Sarah there, a lot like she is now, but with a lot more cuts. The camera zooms into his hand close to the witchblade as he says he was on suspension 
but the call came in on his scanner, and like a good partner, Jake McCarthy was there, first on scene. We move on to page seven, first panel, and we're outside of the room, all three people still inside of it, with a couple of guys chatting outside the door. One of these guys outside of the door has a really great mustache, so great art all through this thing, even in the small details. And Jake is saying that if he knew more, he would have said more, and that only Sarah knows what happened. Next panel, we're in tight on Jake as Gleason says, that's the story everybody's telling, and Jake replies, all right, I showed you mine, now you show me yours. We get to a close-up shot of Gleason's face, most of it is covered in shadow, and he gives us his personal history. He says he's 39 and has been on the force for 17 years, spending the last three as a special investigator in the commissioner's office. His father was a former cop, retired for a decade, and that his brother was also a cop who died during the events of 9-11. So his family knows service and have lost people to it, and they're native New Yorkers. So his history, if you're paying attention, is a lot like Sarah Pozzini's, right? Sarah Pozzini lost her father in the line of duty and became a cop to follow in his footsteps. Gleason followed in his father's footsteps, sold to his brother, and his brother lost his life during 9-11. Next, we see both men in shadow, bathed from the outside light, and Gleason seems to be growing annoyed. He asks what else Jake needs to know before he stops giving him the ice grill. He says, anything else you need to know before you stop giving me the stink eye, boxes of briefs, missionary or But Jake, like all of us, is perfectly fine not having that type of information. Nobody wants to know what a cop's briefs are, brother. Boxers, briefs, we don't care. Gleason says good, folds his arms, and asks if he can ask a more personal question. We should always say no, but Jake says go ahead. The final panel, we have Jake, his jaw clenched, Sarah's face is in the foreground. Gleason asks in a roundabout way if Jake and Sarah are sleeping together. Jake is not a beat around the bushes kind of guy, so he asks the question direct. But the way his teeth are clenched, I can tell he's pissed. We turn the page and we get Gleason staring down at Jake as Jake tells him that sleeping with your partner is against department rules. Gleason agrees and the camera shifts back to Jake. He says he dated Sarah's sister for a while, if you could call it that, making me think they were either friends with benefits or a booty call, and he says no, he and Sarah don't have that kind of relationship. Gleason backpedals a little bit, he says he's not trying to cause a problem. Jake says he knows, Gleason's just doing his job. Jake stands up from his chair telling Gleason that he said the same thing to plenty of people and they didn't like it in the same way he doesn't. So we have a police officer here admitting that the way that police go about their questioning is uncomfortable. Jake then asks Gleason if the man is going trick-or-treating tonight. So we have a day, it's Halloween, and Jake says Gleason, he can go as is and tell people he's a cop. I think it's an awesome jab because Gleason is giving off major internal affairs vibes throughout this whole thing. And if you know copaganda like I know copaganda, the Watchmen do not like the Watchmen tasked with watching them. Jake slides on his jacket, it looks like blue denim, and as he does, Gleason asks if Jake is from the city originally. Jake says no, he's a Cali boy. He's probably from LA. And Gleason says figures. That's it, one word, figures. And the two men ice grill each other before Jake leaves the room, giving us a final panel with Sarah and Gleason alone. And we get our first ad in this one. It's for the first Top Cow comic I ever read and still own several issues of, Hunter Killer. It followed a 20-year-old kid from Montana named Ellis who was hurled into a world of secret superpower humans known as Ultra Sapiens. Ellis's powers made him able to track other Ultra Sapiens, and he joined the team known as the Hunter Killers to help capture the others. There are plot twists, there are interesting characters, and just dazzling art all the way through. It was one of the comics that I would routinely stop in every week to check if a new issue came out. Despite probably having gotten a new issue the week before, I was thirsty for this comic. It was an amazing comic. <clears throat>
I don't know what I did with my first seven issues, but whoever I lent them to, you gotta swing those back this way, Shim. I need those back. We turn to page nine and we see Gleason standing over Sarah asking what happened to her when he realizes someone is watching him. He can feel it over his shoulder and he says, huh? And he turns around. We see in the doorframe an older Asian man. He's wearing a white silk Mandarin shirt with gold collar and gold hem, so he's swaggy. He's got on black pants and I'm assuming that's silk too. He has a bald head, he has a Fu Manchu mustache and a braided goatee. And this goatee is long, it comes down almost to the middle of his chest. So this man is standing here, but he isn't saying anything, prompting Gleason to ask, what are you standing here for, bro? Can I help you? Old man leaves from in front of the door without saying a word, and Gleason, confused, tells Sarah not to go anywhere, which is, I think, a shitty joke to tell an unconscious person, and he said it out loud, so I stand by that. And then he leaves her hospital room to follow this man. Gleason gets into the hallway, and we see the old man's leg turning the corner at the end of the hall. Gleason gives chase, but by the time he reaches him, the man has already made it through the exit. We get to page 10 and first panel, we see Gleason. He's thrown the exit doors wide to the hospital and he's staring at the outside world. And it's a great panel. It's Halloween, so we see a couple of kids dressed up to his left. One of them is wearing the darkness mask. If you remember, the darkness is part of the trinity the Witchblade is in. Another kid has an S-curl working and he's got what can be assumed to be a Superman shirt on. We have a kid to his right in a Scream uniform. This is 2004, so Scream was really big. So, what's up? And there's a beautiful woman with golden lens horn-rimmed glasses, and a teal shirt. If Top Cow is gonna give you anything, you can bank on it being a beautiful woman randomly. And that's what we get here. So Gleason steps out onto the street and looking left, he sees the old man turning the corner. Again, this old man is just bending corners and Gleason is way behind him. So I'm already curious about what's going on with this old man and how is he so fleet-footed? So Gleason gives chase. He bumps into a red-headed New Yorker who calls him an asshole and tells him to watch where he's going. You gotta love redheads. I'm walking here. That's what I imagine this redhead said. I'm walking here, you asshole. But Gleason ignores him. He gets to the corner. He bends the corner. And he doesn't see the man anymore. What he does see is a shop front. It's grayish green. There are no signs on the windows. The door is ajar, but there is a sign on the door. It's one of those two-faced shop signs where one side says open and the other side says closed, and the closed part is in the window. But Gleason has a bag, so what are rules to the lawless? And in the final panel, we see his hand pushing the door open. We turn a page, Gleason enters the shop, and it seems to be an antique shop. There are large masks and different cultural designs, there are different statues behind glass cases, there are drums, there are aisles up on shelves, etc. And Gleason asks if anyone is here before he starts walking along the aisles. He stops in front of a jade statue up on a shelf, and this jade statue looks like a squat goblin sitting cross-legged holding something in its hands, and Gleason picks it up, and he's wondering what it is. In the final panel, we have a voice from off-scene saying Gleason's found his way to the shop. And Gleason, turning with surprise, has the idol slipped from his hands. So we move on to page 12. In the first panel, we see the idol has crashed onto the floor and shattered. And we see the old man from the hospital. And he's saying that it's excellent that Gleason made it. Gleason says that the old man startled him. And reaching into his jacket, he says, Thought of me sneaking up like that. I didn't think anybody was here. Sorry about the knickknack. I'll pay for it. Hope it's not too expensive. It's not like hundreds of years old or anything, is it? End quote. So Butterfingers has entered a clothes shop, dropped the jade statue, shattering it, and then calls it a knick-knack like he's on the D train and the guy selling yo-yos has just walked into his train car. He's shameless. Granted, he's a cop and he's got questions, but he's a New York cop and their motto plastered on their blue and whites is CPR. Courtesy, professionalism, respect. Gleason is batting 043 right now. Gleason asks the old man if the idol is hundreds of years old and the old man replies no. Not hundreds. And this is comics, so Gleason brushes it off. But I'm getting the impression that this thing is much older than hundreds of years. Maybe thousands. 
Either way, the man says Gleason doesn't have to pay him for it. We turn the page, we're on page 13 now. We turn the page and Gleason is saying, no, I like to pay my debts. But at the same time, he's not here to shop. He asked the man if he was in the hospital just now, looking into Sarah's room, and he says, that was you at the hospital, wasn't it? Looking into Sarah Pizzini's room? You just an average peeping Tom, or do you know her? Again, 043. And the old man replies, he says that he's watched her now and again, but now Gleason is in her life. And Gleason's confused. He didn't know Sarah before today, to which the old man replies, while reaching up with spindly fingers to grab a winged, open-mouthed dragon idol, that Gleason is about to play a major role in her life. So now Gleason is upset. He says he didn't tell the man his name, and honestly, I'd be upset too. This guy is talking in riddles, he throws out my whole government, and isn't giving me any answers. So Gleason wants answers too. He asks the shopkeep his name, and the shopkeep, setting the dragon down on the counter between them and putting a stick of incense in its mouth, says it wouldn't be wrong to call him the curator. And the curator says he watches over things and people. And we see him light a match, and he puts it into the dragon's mouth, saying, yeah, you're right, you didn't tell me your name. So the curator is being very creepy and mysterious right now, and now I'm starting to get alarmed. And we get to the next page, and we get a great panel. We get a close-up of the dragon's head, and its eyes and mouth are lit up, and there's smoke wafting up in front of it. Off-panel, Gleason still over everything. He calls the curator Nostradamus and says card sharks must turn and run when they see him coming. Sidebar, if you're not from New York and you've never been, never, ever think you can win at three-card Monty in the street. You can't win, baby. You cannot win. In New York, the house is the street, and the house always wins. Go to Vegas if you want a fair chance. Back to... Gleason goes on to say that the curator's crystal ball must have also told the man that Gleason was investigating what happened to Sarah. So now Gleason is really antagonizing this man because this man is not giving up any answers and being creepy and he seems to know so much about Sarah and so much about Gleason and Gleason wants answers so now he's getting frustrated and antagonizing. So we zoom out and we get both men in the panel and Gleason goes on to say that the curator's crystal ball can tell him why Sarah's laying in the hospital in a coma that the doctors can't find a cause for at all. He goes on to say to the curator, tell me what happened at the church. So if you're seeing a pattern here in comics, if you remember Avengers number 357, doctors can never find out what is going on with these super powered beings. We call in all these doctors. If you recall, the swordsman had a bunch of doctors check them out in Avengers number 357 and no one could find out what's wrong. And we have Sarah Pazzini. She's been laying in the hospital unconscious for three weeks and none of the doctors know what is wrong with her. So Gleason is pushing, pushing, pushing for information, and the curator is not phased by all this bravado at all. He says the past is the past, and that Gleason should ask what will happen, not what did happen. And in the final panel, we get a close-up of the curator's face, and he's got hazel eyes, just some beautiful hazel eyes, and he says, ask instead what Sarah Pazzini is. We turn the page, and we're on pages 15 and 16 now, and we get what Top Cow does better than any comics company in the game. And we see Michael Choi, shout out to Michael Choi, doing it better than most. We have a double page spread here of seven different beautiful women, all former wielders of the Witchblade. On the upper left of page 15, we have a redhead in a golden tiara with a green gem at its center, gauntlets and golden armor wrapping her bicep. On the lower left of page 15, we have Anne Bonnie, the legendary pirate. She's got flowing black hair, a brown two-tone bandana tying it back, a dingy collared shirt tied between her breasts, She's got a silver witchblade on her right arm, growing to the elbow, and she's wearing a black pirate jacket with red lining and holding a flintlock pistol. Next to her, we have another woman with black hair, a long, form-fitting white dress on with a low collar. The witchblade armor has cut a slit into the right leg of her dress, 
and is wrapping her leg in both arms in its golden jagged protection. The Witchblade has grown up her right shoulder into a pauldron, the shoulder protection worn by knights, and creating an epier down her right arm, ending in a sharp point. It's a beautiful image. Above her, another stunning woman. This woman's in profile. She has cherry red lips, and the Witchblade has created a crown of armor on her head. On page 16, we see in the upper right a woman with cherry blonde hair, and she has a hand raised, the Witchblade running up her arm. Beneath this woman, we have Hua Mulan, the only one of these women wearing any real armor outside of the Witchblade. She has on feudal armor, it's red and gold with a lavender shirt beneath it and a teal collar. The Witchblade also doesn't look as sharp on her, more like dragon scales than anything else. And she's wielding a golden sword. She and Anne Bonnie are my favorite two on this page. And beneath Hua Mulan, we have Sarah Pazzini, our hero, and just a close-up shot of her face and hair. In the center of all of this, between pages 15 and 16, smack dab in the middle, we have the Witchblade, large, imposing with the red gem at its center and the blue gem beneath it. This is a stunning two pages. I wish there were a woman of color here, but we're gonna move on. Through this double page spread, the curator is saying Sarah possesses one of the 13, even as it possesses her. And I think he's referring to the Witchblade. So the Witchblade is one of 13, where we're told that it's one of three. So the plot is thickening. The curator tells Gleason that she wields the Witchblade and explains that the weapon is both ancient and terrible and that it has been passed down through the ages and always forms a symbiotic relationship with its host. The Witchblade uses them as much as they use it and he finishes by saying, Sarah will need to learn to harness its full power and bend it to her will. If she fails, he says, we turn the page and we have a close-up of the curator's lips. The curator has no top lip. <laughs> and he says, This world will end in blood and fire. So if Sarah Pazzini cannot bend the Witchblade to her will, this world is going to end in blood and fire. That is horrifying. The next panel, Patrick, oh for everything, Gleason has his fingers to his lips like he's puffing a joint. And he's saying the old man is lighting up something stronger than incense and calls the whole story a load correction. The biggest load of crap. If that's not bad enough, he finishes with Sarah Pazzini is a cop, not some heroine in a trashy Anne Rice novel. I think that's, again, a garbage shot to take. Anne Rice, if you don't know, wrote Interview with a Vampire and Queen of the Damned, both adapted to pretty good major motion pictures, so Gleason's not only a jerk, he has no taste in good, good media. Shout out to Anne Rice and shout out through the ether to the immortal Aaliyah who played the Queen of the Damned in the major motion picture. Back to the curator responds. He says, well, I got to lie to you, bro. He says, believe me, because it's going to come down to you to help Sarah save the world. And he finishes with the warning. A beast is coming. The final panel here. We have Gleason reaching back into his jacket. He's staring down at the floor and he's saying that this is his stop on the crazy train. And to ensure that we know he's a jerk, he adds, tell me how much I owe you for that ugly damn thing I broke and then I don't want to see you. But before he can finish his sentence, we have a picture in picture here and it's a shot of the floor where the shadow jade statue is supposed to be. But the statue is gone. We move on to page 18 and we see O for Everything staring down at the floor wondering what happened to the Jade Goblin. He can't see it, but we see that it's back up on the shelf as if it's never fallen. This Jade statue, this Jade Idol is back up on the shelf where he originally pulled it back from and it is whole without a crack anywhere on it. So Gleason whips his head in the direction of the statue and he asks the curator how he cleaned up the mess and put a new statue back up on the shelf. The curator doesn't answer him. The next panel, Gleason has had enough and he says it, calling his whole interaction with the curator a freak show. A freak show. Respect? None. Oh, for everything. The curator tells him that they'll meet again and you know Gleason, 
is going to go cliche. He says, you'd better hope not. In the final panel, he tells the curator what he could have said from the start, stay away from Sarah Pizzini. I find you hanging around the hospital again. I'll run your ass in. That's what he could have led with. As soon as he didn't get the information, he could have led with that. But he came in hot because this old man had him around the corner of the hospital, down the stairs, out the building, around another corner, into this antique shop. So Gleason is pissed. He's not going to lead with respect. He's going to lead with his annoyance. If you're in the public service, put your annoyance to the side. Do your job. If you hate your job, quit. So Gleason says all of this and he leaves the shop. We turn the page and we get an ad for a soundtrack to the Witchblade television series. I have never seen this TV show. I'm sure when I first read this comic, I blew past the ad because I used to blow past all the ads when I was reading. So to know Witchblade has a show, I'm going to check it out. I've never seen it, but I'll find it and I hope it is boss. Page 19 opens and we see a wooden Jesus on a cross, light shining down on him through a stained glass window. It's a very serene shot until we zoom out. We get the next panel and we see Sour in front of this cross. She's holding a six-shot revolver with both hands. She's got her left eye closed and she's taking aim. Her hair is flowing out behind her to the right, so we know she's breaking left. She is on the move. The next panel, we get a great dichotomy of colors as we see the shadow of a demon dog in front of a golden white stained glass image of Jesus Christ holding a lamb. Next, we get a close-up of the barrel of Sarah's weapon and she's let a shot go. She let that thing go. But whatever this demon is, it knocks the gun from her right hand and we see in the final panel a close-up of her hand as the witch blade activates. So the witch blade is not gonna wait around. You just attacked my host, she is I and I am her, it's on. We turn the page and we get a dope shot of Sarah. She is suited and booted. But when Sarah witch blades out, her suited and booted is a lot cooler than most people suited and booted. In this case, the witch blade has crept up her right arm and is covering the outer edges of her face and her arm in the offensively defensive arm. This time the Witchblade doesn't destroy her clothes and Sarah, she's got some style. She's wearing a white t-shirt that's sitting just above her belly button that has short black sleeves and a golden star at its center. She's wearing some distressed SJBs. She's got on a black belt with a silver longhorn buckle. Her badge is swinging from her neck and the Witchblade on her hand is surrounded by fire. It's gorgeous art and Sarah is about to let this real thing go. In the foreground, we have shadows of the creature coming at her, but we can't see exactly what it is or if there's only one. I think there are two judging from this layout. Whatever the number, Sarah's in attack mode. She raises her hand and shoots a blast of fire at the creature. And we see it hit what looks like a scaly hide. The action bleeds over onto page 21, where we get a horrifying visual in the first panel of a monstrous mouth wide open, razor sharp fangs, tripping saliva, and a slick, veiny tongue. We move to the next panel, and this maw is inches from Sarah's face, dripping flecks of spit on her. Her mouth is wide open in horror, and I know some of that spittle has gotten into her mouth, but she's too busy fighting for survival to care. The next panel, there is a close-up of the crucifix once more, and we get a very detailed white Jesus with an expression of sadness on his face. Next, there's a close-up of the crucifix once more, and we get a very detailed white Jesus with an expression of sadness on his face before the camera shifts back to Sarah in the final panel where we just see her big brown eyes wide with terror. We turn the page and we see those same eyes in a pit box before we get Sarah sitting straight up in her hospital bed and she is screaming. Whatever happened to her in that sanctuary that she just lived through in her mind has snapped her out of her coma. The heart monitor behind her says her heartbeat is going 161 beats per minute. If you're in a still position, as an adult, 
60 to 100 beats per minute is a healthy heart rate. So Sarah is in dangerous territory. She is in full-on panic mode. She probably in that dream believes that it was really happening and this probably really happened. But before we can get anything more, we see the hated, the hated to be continued box in the lower right of the issue, bringing Witchblade number 80 to a close. So, Witchblade comes to a close and we get a few more pages after the issue ends. One is letting us know that although it's issue 80, this is going to be a fresh start for Witchblade, the comic series. We turn that page and we get a couple of pages of the variant covers of the comic. All of these are beautiful. There's one here I especially like where Sarah is punching Jake in the jaw. She probably found out about Jake trying to whack her sister. We turn the page again and we have an interview page for Ron Mars the writer and Michael Choi the penciler. And we have a biography page pointing out the major characters in this issue. A spotlight if you will, at the end. I like it. I wish this was a standard thing in comics, but a lot of the fun in comics, at least till the internet got involved, was seeing how many cool things from comics you could remember and regurgitate in an argument on the subject to prop your hero up as number one. We turn the page again and it wraps with a letter page and we're out. So I got this comic for free. I'm not sure if it was a free comic book day gift or a Comic Con gift. I feel like it was during my first New York Comic Con at the Jacob Javits Center. And that was an adventure. There were cosplayers all over the place. One guy had made by himself a really cool Avatar fighting machine from the movie Avatar. Beautiful, it was gigantic. He was like nine feet tall. I had pictures, it was wild. I saw a guy dressed up in a very well done Iron Man costume with the arc reactor glowing in his chest. Tons of Spider-Mans. It was literally a thrill ride. I'll never forget my first Comic-Con. It was wild. It was an adventure. I tried to go to every panel and really wore myself out on the first day. But I had the three weekend pass. Don't worry. I saw it all. Either way, no matter where I got it, the comic grabbed me and I stuck with the comic for a while. There's more Witchblade in the stash boxes, so we may see our hero Sarah Pazzini again. As for me, you'll definitely see me again universe willing. A message to the High Council, I've changed the deadline for the polls on the selection of the bonus episodes. I think by moving the date up to Friday, it gives me more time to re-familiarize myself with the comic and will lead to a greater narration. This will go into effect with the DC poll selection currently up in the High Council tier of High Society Publishing Presents. So the deadline to vote on this DC comic will now be Friday, October 1st. Power to the patrons. So that's our show, folks. I'll be back next week with a return to the House of Ideas with Daredevil Volume 3, number one, The Man Without Fear. I'm excited. Double D, Hornhead, he is in my top five favorite heroes all time, and I can't wait to do a Daredevil story. Until then, please think of the world, and remember, with great power, you know already. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.